Morning, guys. Morning. It's uh, always uh, edifying to be with all of you. I just love the fellowship that we have together. Uh, we can start passing out these uh, handouts and uh, any extras, hand them over to Terry and he'll make sure if anybody else comes in the drawer they have them. And if we don't have enough, let me know and I'll have Steve go make some more copies. <laughs> Uh, I made 25 copies. It's, we're getting close to that, I think. So uh, hopefully there's enough to go around. Uh, why I'm uh, giving you an introduction, if you want to put your fingers in Job 38 and John 3.16, those are passages I'll have you refer to as we go along, so you're, you're there ahead of time, so it doesn't take you too long to find that. Job 38 and, and uh, John 3.16 are places that we'll go today uh, in the Bible. One of the things I like about holy, holy, holy is the one line, perfect in power, perfect in love, and perfect in purity. We serve a perfect and a holy, holy God. And this has always been my all-time favorite uh, you know, since a little, as a little kid. Uh, and, and then they, just the way they do the come behold the wondrous mystery, the way the music is, it is the mystery that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. We now have a full revelation of Christ and what he did for us. And it's just uh, really edifying to hear these type of verses to prepare our hearts for the message. So with that, let's get started. Everybody have a handout? There was enough to go around? Yes. Okay, great. So this is part five in, in the series that we've, we've had on the, on the love, uh, God's love. We've got two more after this. And uh, this one's kind of, everything I needed to know about, or I need to know about the love of God, I learned in the nursery. Question mark. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, I learned that as a little kid. And that's, that does tell you a lot. But is that everything you do need to know about God's love? From childhood, the most of us have heard that God, that God loves us. The Bible tells us that the love is at the very heart of who God is. John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He is the God of love and peace, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Those truths are so wonderful that they are Always among the first things we teach are to our children, our children, that God is love. And that's as it should be. But we dare not get the idea that God's love is only a child subject. And let's not think that we have mastered the subject by absorbing what we were taught as children. This subject is certainly not child's play. As we have seen already, God's love raises some many complex and sometimes disturbing questions. These questions need to be thought through carefully and answered biblically. I promised you last month when we were here, we're going to get to the hard questions about the truth of God's love that comes to all of us at some point in time in our walk of faith. Even after we've learned about these issues and the preceding everything that we've learned so far, we may still have some of these questions that are among the hardest dilemmas for pastors and theologians and for believers to be faced with. 
what are those questions? And they're on the first half of your, your handout. I'm going to read all those questions to you. If God is love, why is the world such a theater of tragedy? If God is so loving, why does he allow his own people to suffer? If God so loved the world, then why does he allow all suffering and torture and pain and sorrow and grief and death? If God is both loving and omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, then why is the world such a mess? Why would a loving God ever allow wars and famines and disasters to cause so much human anguish? If God is the loving Father of humanity, why doesn't he act like a human father who loves his children? Why does he allow his creatures to make choices that result in their destruction when he could prevent it or overrule it? If God is a loving God, why did he allow sin in the first place? And why death? Those are pretty tough questions. But there are more questions, and they even get harder, believe it or not. If God is love, why isn't everyone saved? Why are only some said to be elect, chosen by God to eternal life? Why would a loving God send a people to hell to suffer forever? Why would a loving God devise a plan that has so many people going to hell for all eternity? What kind of love is it that can control the world but allows the world to suffer and why it suffers? What, can, what kind of love is it that is a sovereign yet sends poor suffering people to an eternal flame? How are we to understand this kind of love? Okay, ready? Here we go. <laughs> The third, first thing to think about, people give wrong answers to these hard questions about God's love. And we've got to be very careful about the wrong answers that people give to these questions. They're reasonable questions, and they need to be faced with, honestly. So I'm not belittling any of these questions. It won't do to pretend such difficulties are easy to answer either or simply ignore them and hope they go away. Anyone who thinks deeply about God will eventually come face to face with these very questions and others like them. They are unsettling, they're vexing, even bewildering questions. Genuinely satisfying answers to them seem elusive. And there's no point in pretending such questions should pose there's no point in pretending such questions should pose no problems for Christians. They do pose a problem for us. In fact, history reveals that those who settle for the easy answers to these questions often make a shipwreck of the faith. Usually they will cite scripture selectively and ignore half of some of the more important biblical truths while grossly overemphasizing the other halves of truth. And so they go to, tend to go to extremes in trying to answer these questions. The causality list of those who have run on the rocks over these questions is enough to make the discerning Christian realize that these are hazardous waters to navigate. For example, universalism teaches that in the end, everyone will be saved. Universalists, the Unitarian Church is one of them, believes that because God is love, 
he cannot internally condemn anyone. In the end, they believe hell will not even exist. Some teach that the evil, that the devil and his fallen angels will even be redeemed. As we will shortly see in Scripture, Revelations 20.10 contradicts such a view. Another example to solve the dilemma posed by God's love is a theory known as annihilationism. Under this scheme, God takes believers to heaven and puts the rest out of existence, end of their being. They experience no consciousness of punishment or suffering. They are judged by having their existence terminated. According to this view, therefore, there is no such place as an eternal hell. Many cults and apostate dominations have embraced this doctrine as well. A doctrine closely related to annihilationism is a theory known as conditional immorality. This is a new one to me. I didn't know about this one. Immortality. Immortality. (laughs) Thank you. Conditional immortality. This view suggests that the human soul is transient until immortality is bestowed upon it. Since eternal life is given only to believers, all others simply pass into oblivion oblivion after the final judgment. This view is gaining popularity these days, but it also contradicts the scripture, Matthew 25, 46, and Revelation 14, 11. We'll see those scriptures later. Those views may serve to solve the human emotion to some degree, but they don't do justice to what scripture teaches. Therefore, they are errors and are extremely dangerous ones that because people believe them that gives them a false sense of security. Jesus himself described hell in graphic terms. In fact, he had more to say about hell than any other part of scripture or anyone else in scripture. He described it as a place where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 48. He's called hell outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, in Matthew 8, 12, and 25, 30. He warned unbelievers about the judgment to come. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out, Luke 13, 28. He described hell as an unquenchable fire in Matthew 3, 12, and the furnace of fire in Matthew 13, 42. And he warned all those to whom he preached. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire in Mark 9, 43. Furthermore, Revelation 14, 11 describes hell's torments as unremitting and eternal. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20.10 states, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I had a friend tell me, that's a long time. Matthew 25.46, to sum it up, these the unbelievers referring to in these, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice the word eternal, punishment and eternal life. 
eternal punishment for the unbelievers, and eternal life for the righteous. That verse employs the Greek word for eternal, means perpetual, everlasting, forever, to describe both the bliss of heaven and the punishment of hell. They're both eternal. Embracing any of these theories also usually has the effect of making people feel indifferent to evangelism. They begin to feel comfortable that everyone will either be saved or put out of their misery, so evangelism loses its urgency. The gospel seems less compelling. It becomes easy to kick back and think less about eternal matters. And that is precisely the effect that these theories have had in the churches and denomination groups where they have been taught. As the church becomes liberal, the Christians influenced by them become cold to spiritual things. Many times they deny the faith altogether, like the Unitarian Church. The history of universalism provides abundant evidence of this. Because the doctrines is at the heart of is at its heart a denial of scripture, scripture, it is a sure road to serious apostasy. But one can easily err in the other direction as well. There are some Christians who ponder the hard questions about divine love and conclude that God simply does not love people who are in his home. He hates them. Under this scheme, there is no tension between God's love and his wrath. There is no reason to wonder how God can love people whom he ultimately condemns because you simply conclude that whoever he condemns, he hates. The non-elect are people whom God never loved in any sense. People who hold this view are quick to remind that God is angry with the wicked, Psalm 7:11, that he loved Jacob and hated Esau, Romans 9:13, and that he hates those who practice wickedness, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. But they forget that God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. They conclude that such hatred and genuine love are mutually exclusive. Therefore, according to this view, the love of God is limited to the elect alone. That view doesn't do justice to Scripture either. It restricts God's love to a remnant and pictures him hating the vast majority of humanity. In the terms of sheer number, it suggests that God's hatred for humanity overwhelms his love. That is not consistent with the God of Scripture, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34, 6. It doesn't seem befitting of the one whom Scripture describes as in Nehemiah 9, 17, a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And it doesn't seem consistent with the truth of Psalm 145, 8 through 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are all over his works. If God was really that wrathful, as soon as we sin, we would be, out, we would be in hell right away. He, he wants us to come to him, and that's why we're all still here if we haven't come to him already. And for the ones that have come to him already, we're here to minister the gospel to the unbelievers. What about God so loved the world in John 3.16? There are some good commentators who've tried to limit the meaning, and you might want to turn to John 3.16 now. 
There are some good commentators who have tried to limit the meaning of the word world in this verse to the elect alone. However, that view seems to run contrary to the whole thrust of the message. John Calvin got it correct during the Reformation that saw that the verse is a statement of the Father's love for the human race. That's why he created us. He created us in love. In fact, the whole point of verse 17 that follows is to assert that Christ's advent was a search and rescue mission, not a crusade for judgment. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that world should be saved through him. Verse 17. The point of this is that God's primary purpose in sending Christ was born out of love. God, Christ's purpose is coming to save us, not to destroy us. Inevitably, those who want to limit the meaning of world in verse 16 will suggest that the world in verse 17 cannot include every individual in the world, unless the passage is teaching a form of universalism. The verse says Christ came so that the world might be saved through him. Obviously, not every individual in the world is saved, but he came to, into the world. Therefore, they suggest world in both verses must be limited to the elect alone, and the verse can only mean God so loved the elect. But the world in this context, context seems clearly to speak of humanity in general. If we try to make the term mean either every individual or the elect alone, the passage simply makes no sense. The word world here is a synonym for the human race. Humanity in general is the object of divine love. And verse 17 simply means that Christ came to redeem his fallen race, not every individual, but the human race. Titus 3.4 speaks of God's love in these very terms. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The whole sweep of text seems to be saying that in a broad sense, God's love is set on the whole human race, not just the remnant of the elect individuals. Indeed, to make good sense of this passage, we must interpret the expression world in 16 and 17 as broadly as we understand the same word in verse 19. So in verse 319, and this is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. He came into the whole world. It's for the whole world that he came. Clearly, word is universal and corporate aspect that envelopes more than just the elect alone. God's love is for the world in general and the human race, all humanity. So how are we to understand Romans 9.13? Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Did God really hate Esau? Yes. He hated the evil he represented. He hated Esau's unbelief in sin and worldliness. And in a real sense, God hated Esau himself. It was not a petty, spiteful, childish kind of hatred, but something far more dreadful. It was a divine hostility, a holy loathing directed at Esau personally. God loathed him as well as what he stood for. Esau, for his part, hated the things of God. He despised his birthright and sold it for one bowl of stool stew in Genesis 25, 34. He brought nothing but grief to his parents, 
2635. He plotted to kill his own brother in 2741. He married pagan women because he knew it would displease his father, 228, 8 through 9. He lived a careless, worldly life of utter disregard and disrespect for the God of his ancestors. Certainly, God hated all of that, as well as Esau himself. It is worth noting that the passage Paul is actually quoting in Romans 9 is Malachi 1, 2 through 3. God was speaking to two nations, Israel and Edom, merely calling them by the names of their respective ancestors. The word, I have hated Esau, in Malachi 1, 3, has the meaning that goes beyond Esau himself and encompasses the whole evil nation of Edom, which Esau is the father of. The hatred this describes is not petty, spiteful loathing, but a holy abhorrence of people who were thoroughly and absolutely debauched. But God's hatred for Esau and the nation of Edom does not prove that he had no love, compassion, nor charity whatsoever for Esau or his descendants. In fact, we know from Scripture that God was kind to this despicable nation. When the Israelites left Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, to Canaan, they passed through the land of Edom. And what God told Moses in Deuteronomy 2.5 was, Do not provoke them, for I will not give you their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Sarah to Esau as a possession. This holy hatred combined with the loving kindness implies no inconsistency or vagueness on God's part. Both love and wrath are reflections of his nature. He is loving, yet holy. He is compassionate, yet indignant over evil. Hatred and love are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Even in the range of human emotions, such feelings are quite common. Most people know that very well what is to hate and love at the same time at the same object. One might, for example, have both sincere compassion, yet deep revulsion towards a, a filthy tramp who has lived a life of debauchery. Furthermore, any parent knows wrath and love do not rule out one another. We know that God is often angry with those who are the objects of his everlasting love. After all, before salvation, all of us, we were the enemies of God, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2, 3. Conversely, God genuinely and, severe, and sincerely loves those who are the objects of his eternal wrath. We simply cannot resolve these difficulties, difficult questions about divine love by concluding that God actually withholds his loving kindness, compassion, mercy, and goodwill for all but the elect. So we must reject universalism, annihilationism, and conditional immortality. But we must also refuse the notion that God's hatred for the wicked rules out their love for them. How then shall we answer the hard questions about divine love? One other solution is often suggested. It is to tell those inclined to ask the hard questions, shut your mouth. You have no right to ask the question. People who take this approach will point to Romans 9, 20, 21, where the Apostle Paul replied to a skeptic of God's sovereignty by saying, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Who are we to question God? That is what Paul asks. God is God. He will do whatever he wants to do because he is completely sovereign. He is the potter. He decides what the pot will be like. And the pot has no right to object. Obviously, that is the all very true. God is God. We cannot comprehend his ways. Many of the questions we ask have answers we could never comprehend. Certainly, we have no right to challenge God's motives. We are not entitled to subject him to our interrogation as if he were accountable to us. And sometimes the questions we raise don't even deserve to be answered. In the end, we will be left with many unanswered questions in this lifetime. That will bring us to Romans 9.20 and then inevitably a place where we must simply close our mouths and stand in awe. Before we get to that point, though, there are many things that we do need to understand. But Romans 9.20 is a fitting response to a skeptic. It is appropriate for the person who will not be satisfied with knowing that God himself, what God himself has revealed. But for the truth seeker, sincerely wanting to understand God and his love, there is much in the Bible to help him come to grips with the hard questions before coming to a stop at Romans 9.20. That is not to say we're going to find all the answers to these questions. We can't. For example, the very difficult question, why a loving God does not redeem everyone? If God is love, why does he send some people to endless hell? Why, does he redeem, why doesn't he redeem everyone? We simply don't know. Scripture doesn't say. So if Scripture doesn't say, God has chosen not to reveal that to us. God himself, anyone who pretends to know more than God has told is foolish. Ultimately, we reach the place where we must leave our questions to God and trust essential righteousness, his loving kindness, his tender mercy, and his justice. We learn to live with the unanswered questions in light of what we know to be true about God. At that point, Romans 9.20 becomes a satisfying answer because we know we can trust the potter. Meanwhile, as we search God's word with an open heart, God's own self-revelation gives us a wonderful, marvelous, rich, comprehensible understanding of his love. We can also have wrong questions based on the wrong perspective of God. In grappling with these hard questions about God's love, it is crucial to bear in mind the human tendency to see things from the wrong perspective. We cannot comprehend the infinite God with our finite minds. If we attempt to measure God from a human perspective, our thinking about him will be out of whack. And we sin against God when we think things of him that are unbefitting of his glory. God himself rebukes those who underestimate him 
by thinking of him in human terms. Psalm 50, 21. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Remember how the book of Job ends? And you might want to turn to Job's 38 now. We'll go through that. After all Job's suffering and his friend's counsel that actually added to his sufferings, God rebuked not only Job's counselors, but also Job himself for entertaining thoughts about God that are not sufficiently high. If we don't have a high view of God, we're going to get in trouble. Both Job and his counselors were attempting to explain God in human terms. They were trying to make sense of what Job was going through, but their failure to see God as far above his creatures had skewed their view of what was happening. The counselors were giving the wrong answers, and Job was asking the wrong questions. God put some questions of his own to Job in Job 38, starting in verse 2. We'll go through 32 through 13. Here's God speaking to Job. Who is this that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? He's really rebuking Job in that first sentence, right? Who is, that, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. These are harsh words that God's speaking right now. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. It's very sarcastic. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who did it? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick, and, and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set the bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked and be shaken out of and the wicked be shaken out of it? God is recounting his creative works and is asking if Job is wise enough to tell God how these things are to be done. From this point on for the next 3 to 4 chapters, God lists his marvels of his creation and challenges Job to tell him if he knows better than God how the universe ought to be run. Rather than seeking to vindicate himself in Job's eyes, God simply appeals to his own sovereignty in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 1. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In verses 4 and 5 of, of chapter 40, Job is finally wising up to know that he has said too much already. He knows he crossed the line and simply replied, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then God asked Job in 48 through 9, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this or like his? Job's questions 
valid as they may have seemed, for someone who had suffered, and boy, no one suffered more than that Job had suffered, actually cast aspersions on God's character. Job was stepping over the line if he thought he could justify himself at God's expense. Job, by God's own testimony, was blameless and an upright man. There was no one like Job on the face of the earth, Job 1.8. Yet he suffered probably more than anyone else had ever suffered. Job was not as deserving of such suffering as anyone else could have been. Why was he taking the brunt of this catastrophe? Where was God's love and his sense of justice and fair play? It was inevitable that Job would struggle with some very difficult questions like those who people today, with a lot of suffering, wonder, where is God's love? But the moment his questions reflected misgivings about God, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, and the equity of his justice, Job and his friends had crossed the line. They were appraising God by human standards. They forgot that he is the potter and that we are merely the clay. So God rebuked them. And Job immediately saw his sin in 42.3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, for which I do not know. We need to bear in mind as we ponder the love and the wrath of God, that in many ways these things touch on knowledge too wonderful for us. Psalm 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Romans 11.34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Isaiah 40.13.14, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? Those are the same kinds of questions which God confronted Job. Therefore, as we ponder our own hard question about God's love, we must take great care lest the very questions themselves provoke us to think inadequate or inappropriate thoughts about God or develop sinful attitudes towards his love and wisdom. Wrong inferences from a faulty view of divine providence, coming to the wrong conclusions or trying to think we know what God is trying to do in the world. We infer the wrong thing. We dare not make the errors Job's, Job's counselors were making, thinking he, we can observe the workings of providence and thereby discern the mind of God. Job's friends thought his sufferings were proof that Job was guilty of some secret sin. In reality, the opposite was true. Since it is clear from many scriptures that we cannot go, know God's mind, we must not try to read too much into his works of providence. We cannot assume we know the meaning or purpose of every fortune or disaster that befalls anyone or the world. Often the unrighteousness seemed to prosper 
and experience God's goodness, as in Job 12, 6. The tents of the robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Psalm 37, 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Or Psalm 73, 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, They are, and they increase in riches. So what often seems like divine blessing is no proof of God's favor. Don't think for a moment that prosperity is proof of divine approval. Those who think in those terms are prone to go astray. On the other hand, the righteous frequently suffer, as 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Romans 8.28, But God uses such sufferings to accomplish much good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In other words, the very thing that seems good will end in evil for the impenitent and unbelieving. But for God's own children, even trouble and discipline are intended for our good. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When Joseph uh, was dumped into the pit by his brothers to be abandoned, you meant it for evil, he was telling his brothers when they finally came to Egypt, but God meant it for good. Therefore, the greatest disasters from our perspective may actually be a token of God's loving kindness. John MacArthur tells a story that when the earth shakes, it reminds him of the infinite might of our God. I mean, when the earth shakes, you go, wow, what a mighty God. He controls the earth. At 4.31 a.m. on January 17, 1994, John was suddenly awakened by the most severe tremor he had ever felt. And living in Southern California, that says a lot. That's a big one. The earthquake, which lasted less than 90 seconds, leveled several freeway overpasses very close to his home. A high-rise medical office building in the vicinity dropped 10 feet when the second floor collapsed. A large shopping mall was virtually destroyed. Hundreds of apartment buildings and homes were demolished. Sadly, several people asleep in one building were crushed to death when the ground floor crumbled beneath the weight of the upper two stories. From a financial perspective, it was the most costly natural disaster in the history of our nation at the time. Everyone seems to see the hand of God in such an event. In the midst of the city's crisis, one suddenly heard newscasters and civic officials openly discussing the awesome power of God and speculating whether the earthquake and the wave of other disasters that happened in Southern California in recent years might contain some message from the Almighty. Someone noted that the epicenter of the earthquake was a well-known area of major production for the center of pornography. Sadly, many Christians were confident declaring that earthquake was God's judgment on that community. It was proof, they said, that God was finally fed up with the sins of Southern California. 
This was such a topic of conversation that one of the major networks sent their top news anchors to interview John MacArthur on the story of the earthquake as a judgment of God. One of the first questions the anchorman asked was whether he thought the earthquake was a divine judgment. John's response surprised them. He said he thought God had shown more mercy than judgment in the earthquake. After all, it occurred in an hour when most people were at home in bed, four in the morning. On a Monday morning, that was a government holiday. Fewer people were on the roads than at any other time during the week. The national media has shown scenes of vehicles trapped on islands of roadway where it collapsed on both sides of them and they didn't fall down. Incredibly, not one vehicle had fallen to the ground below. Freeways collapsed, parking structures crumbled, and high-rise office buildings fell. Many people John knew personally narrowly escaped death or serious injury. But of all the millions of people living in that area, less than 60 were killed. In fact, the most remarkable thing of all about the earthquake was the low death toll. On reflection then, what most of the world saw as a catastrophe was most, what most Christians assumed was severe judgment was undoubtedly a token of divine mercy. It surely was a warning of greater judgment to come. But like most incidents that we deem tragedies, the quake undoubtedly held a mixture of both the goodness and the severity of God. In John's estimation, the blessings far outweighed the calamity. Clearly, however, we cannot know the mind of God. There are, there are therefore many pitfalls to avoid in both asking and answering the hard questions about God's love. The subject is not child's play. With those things in mind, we can delve into the God, what God himself reveals in his word, and surely we will find that is very fruitful study. In the next two months, we're going to examine the love of God in even greater depth. We'll attempt to keep a balanced perspective on God's universal love for all men and women and his particular love for a, sa a saving love for his chosen ones, the elect. So next, next month, it'll be about universal love. In the second month, it'll be about the love for the elect. As we weave together these many threads of thoughts, please try to avoid jumping to preliminary conclusions. Once we have the full picture of all that Scripture has to say about the love of God, all the different strands of truth will make a very rich tapestry. Some things may not seem to make sense until we step back and look at the finished work. But when we see the big picture, it will be breathtaking. These two aspects of God's love his universal love for all humanity and his particular love for the elect must not be confounded. To affirm that God loves the elect with a saving love is not to suggest he has no love whatsoever for the rest of humanity. And to acknowledge that God genuinely loves even those whom he does not save is, does not impute any kind of feebleness of God. In the end, none of his purposes will be thwarted. And every aspect of his love perfectly declares his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be humble 
servants and not to besmirch you in any way. We do have these questions, but we also need to make sure that we don't cross that line that Job and his counselors crossed. We must be obedient to your word and understand all your revelation to understand you. We know we won't be able to comprehend everything with our finite minds until we're with you in heaven. We ask you that your teachings convict us of your truths and that the songwriter in Holy, Holy Soul, you are perfect in love, you are perfect in righteousness. And we must understand that everything that you do for the believers is for their good. We ask you for your blessing and your understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.